Welcome to the Grey Eye and Disability Arts online podcast, Disability And, bringing together thoughtful discussion and debate. This month, Grey Eye's young associate, Isa Ahmed, chats to Grey Eye's current artistic director, Jenny Seeley, and past Grey Eye artistic director, Ewan Marshall, about their memories of the company and their experiences of directing. Welcome to the Disability and Podcast. I'm Isa, one of the young associates here at Grey Eye, and I'm very, very excited to be doing this episode. Today we'll be talking to Jenny Steely, which is uh, our current artistic director of Grey Eye, and Ewan Marshall, which was uh, the previous artistic director from 1991. We'll just be talking about the a history of Grey Eye and everything that happened in between. So let's talk about like the journey that you took to becoming Grey's artistic director, Jenny, and like um how how did that happen? Like how how was that for you? Like where did you start? I started off as an actor. Uh, first, I did a dance course but I wasn't brilliant at dancing, right? But acting was my, my passion. And I was lucky enough to audition for a company called Grey Eye. And when I auditioned, it was for an all-women play. And I just remember so clearly going to this room in Borough in London, an old church hall, and it was just full of deaf and disabled women. And I was like, oh, Wow. And I suddenly felt I'd come home, that I'd found my tribe, somewhere where I could belong as a deaf person. It was awesome. And I got the job. Not a great play, but a baptism of fire in terms of just learning, being amongst disabled people, and Grey Eye became my home. I did audition for some other plays. Ewan auditioned me and never gave me another job. Thanks, Ewan. <laughs> so that's my journey. And how about you? Ray I was uh, my first artistic directorship, so a big step for me artistically and publicly, publicly, and also a big step for me personally as a disabled person, because previous to being in Grey Eye, I had been the lone disabled person at Drama College and the lone disabled person in a couple of theatre companies beforehand. So um, it was a very, very seminal and important job for me. Uh, that's that's actually like really amazing like how you can take that big risk and step into those shoes. And I just think like that's, that's really amazing. So congratulations on that. And... So I I just wanted to talk about a few things. So um, did you know each other before um, Grey Eye? 
I can't remember. Um, don't think so. No, I don't think so. No. No, I don't think so. I think I, um, after I worked at Grey Eye, the women's company, I went off to work for Red Ladder, Theatre Centre, different small companies, really good political theatre companies, but not Grey Eye again. And the only time I've met you in those auditions you're in. And then obviously when, um, when I started tipping my toe into the water around becoming a director and I finally got the job at Grey Eye, of course I contacted you and I went, help! Because same, I had never run a company before or had that real big public platform and having to do budgets and business plans and it was like, oh my goodness! So Ewan was a really supportive mentor back in those early days. When you look at Grey Eye now in its fantastic accessible home with a, an, an enhanced and justly deserved global reputation, in 1991, the company was incredibly different. It wasn't core funded, so it had to raise money for any production it could do. And the officers were in half a porter cabin in Camden. So um, it was... Uh, and, and I think artistically, the most the company had actually retreated from going in inaccessible theatre venues, which meant 99% of art centres and theatres then were just not accessible. And I can really understand why they'd done that. But I felt it was really important that however hard it was in terms of physical access, that we had to establish us, ourselves as a credible artistic force. So... We had to swallow a lot of that inaccessibility in the early years to, to establish a reputation. No, I can imagine because I, even back in 1991, the, like, there wasn't much going on for people with disabilities. And even now, like, we're still like, okay, we might have made it like halfway there, but in terms of like representation as a whole, we're nowhere close. So... Grey did a really good job in like trying to work around it. And I think in that day and age that was that is thing to do. So yeah, that's amazing. I I was very lucky when I took over from from Ewan that he had really established it as a company of artistic excellence. And also Ewan and Steve Mannix had managed to get proper funding long-term funding from the Arts Council. So for me, when I arrived, I didn't have to grapple around and try and find project money. I could just go, oh, I can just start creating some plays and plan, forward plan. So when you're doing project funding, it's really difficult to plan, isn't it, Ewan? But when, oh, yeah. when you know you've got your national portfolio money, you can just go, right, I can plan for the future. But I never thought the grey eyes future would go on and on and on and on and on. You know, when the beer sat up the company 40 years ago, he just thought, right, this can, this will do for a few years just to educate and let people know about the skills of deaf and disabled artists. And then people will know the company will close down and we'll all be a mainstream world. Yeah. And 40 years later, like you say, Isa, things are still not fully equal, fully inclusive. We've still got a long way to go. Yeah, and you would think, like, 
like imagine like Nabil was thinking, oh, definitely I'll just do this for a few years unless it was done. But it's took four years to where we are now, and it's still not perfect. And yeah, we still have a long road to go. <laughs> I was asked that question on a radio interview in Northern Ireland quite early. They said, if you're totally successful as a company, um, would Grey I not exist? as in merged with the whole theatre, integrated, accessible world. And I actually said, yes, yes, it would. And then I changed my mind quite quickly. I said, no, actually, there'll always be a case for like-minded, creative people to get together and make work. And that is, you know, we're sort of very familiar with the disability culture, artistic disability culture, that Grey Eye is at the forefront of doing, really. Yeah. And I hope it exists for another 41 years. Yeah, 100%. I think um, even if I think even if we are successful, it does like integrate with the theatre industry. I think we'll still be around as a um, an independent force because like at the end of the day, Greya is where it all started. So even if it does work out, I think people still need to know that we existed. Yeah, yeah. And and even more importantly, just always pushing the artistic barriers and really exploring what you want, what we want to say as disabled and deaf people and neurodiverse people. And um, that culture is always evolving. Yeah. I love what you say as about it's where everything starts. So many people started their career at Grey Eye. Yeah. So many people. Yeah. And then of course, they don't always want to hang around do Grey Eye shows. They want to be working at you know, Derby Theatre or the National Theatre of the Globe. Of course they do. That's great. So some of our responsibility is you know, our young company like you, training you up to become the new artistic director of the future. If Grey Eye come on, that, that's going to be up for grabs one day. Uh, so that's that, going to be a really big shoes to fill. I am very nervous about that. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far just yet. <laughs> you've, got I, time, you've got plenty of time. I know. Yeah, I wouldn't want to let anyone down in that sense. And I just, if I was to do that, I would love to like wait open and like obviously as a company we are always learning different new things and it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next 10 20 years or so and or what new things can await yeah i think um, jenny made uh, uh, we had some training going on uh patchy training going on when i was working there because we just didn't have the kind of funds and resources for it and really most people you just had to learn on the job which is harsh and you know sometimes can be very harsh uh, and unforgiving but Jenny really has developed a very impressive training program that offers you know the first opportunity to so many people like yourself or you know and that, that's a, a really really important part of the work I think of what the Grey Eye company is now. And we're still, I'm very proud of Ensemble, which we're running now in association with Rose Buford. 
And like you had just said, it is really, there's something, I can't really explain it, but when you're with a like-minded, deaf and disabled neurodiverse artist, something happens in that rehearsal room or that training room. And one thing is you are, you come together because you understand difference and you respect each other. You might not fully understand each other's stuff, yeah. but that's all right. We're, we're not scared to ask the questions. So there's no element in the room and we can be ourselves and we know that the access will be there. So we can, we can just concentrate on being the best artist we can be. Mm. And, you know, for like, a bit like you and all of my life, I was just in the mainstream world, very good at nodding, smiling, and I'm thinking I have no idea what anyone's talking about. And that sense of relief, when I finally, finally got to grey, I was like, oh, I could say pardon. I don't have to know everything, and I'm not on my own. I'm not on my own. It's just so important. Yeah, one person, I mean, like you said, like, and so forth, I was lucky enough, this was like a year ago or two, um, while I was still in college, I applied for and so forth, and um, I got to, like, the training week, the one-week trial week, and I can easily tell you, that was the best week of my life because I've never like met so many people with the same ambition as me and with the same like creativity as me and it was just so fun to meet new people and explore different ways of theatre and performing but um yeah so that is definitely a week that I'll carry with me for the rest of my life because that changed the most things for me. Okay, I think we're going to swiftly move along and I want to know what's your first ever show or like show or performance you did with Grey Eye? The first show I did was uh, uh, a play that I inherited when I started. Luckily, there was a, a, a play written and that was by Maria O'Shoddy called Hound. And it was based on her experiences of being at a guide dog centre. That's where it was kind of set and her experiences as a, a blind black woman. Oh, so like, how how was that when you did the play and stuff? Like, um, like what what type of experiences did you have? Or like, uh, do you, did you like the way you did it? Or was it uh, like not that good or? <laughs> well, it's, it, it was really difficult. And one of the things that um, helped evolve how we worked is um, you were in the casting, there were five actors, three who would be blind and two who had to either be non-disabled or look non-disabled. And there was uh, an ethnic mix within the cast as well. And you are, in those days particularly, it meant an extremely small pool of people that you could um, work with. And it actually got to the point, and I really shouldn't quite, I shouldn't admit this on a podcast, but I actually started following this blind woman in the street because she looked so good. And I thought, I wonder if she'll go into theatre or something like that. And she actually went into the... Um, National Centre for, you know, the Royal RNIB. She went in their building 
And I actually found out she worked there. And I rang her at work, you know, and, her and things. And um, she was very flattered to be asked, but she said she couldn't act and she couldn't possibly leave her job. Oh but um, going back to it, I, I was actually really proud of the work that we did on it. And I liked the, you know, the actors we ended up with. And we did some very um, interesting things. And, you know, one of the big challenges artistically was how do you take a touring set around that is going to work for actors who are blind and things? And, and there were dance routines in it, these sort of military dance routines. And, and finally, we came across something. And I think it was suggested by one of the actors. He said, Dave Kent, he said, try sash cord under thin carpet. So, and it worked totally. So an audience would be looking at the play thinking, how are they getting around so well? So whichever venue we were in, as soon as they stepped on the carpet, there was a grid running under it that so they could always orientate themselves where they were on the set. So we were able to do these complex dance routines and all that. So no, I, I really, you know, I was very proud of it. And I, you know, I enjoyed working on it. How it affected me later was I was interested in um, plays where we could have more open, non-specific impairments. I do remember you telling me the story during, of following a blind woman. Oh. And it was at the same time that I was reading Year of the King, where Anton Cher was following in commerce deformed people to go and do his research for, for playing Richard III. And I thought, you know, the, the, the irony, the parallel, you're, you're finding the authenticity and employment, someone else just mimicking. Do you know what I mean? So politically, you did the right thing. I still feel I could have been arrested. <laughs> Some kind of yeah. crazy stalker. <laughs> yeah, I, I think if you did that today, that would be really creepy. I think that would be me cancelled. <laughs> you yeah. would. That's so true. Okay. <laughs> How about you, Jenny? What was the first time you did? My first play for Grey Eye was a play called Two by Jim Cartwright. And I had been working with the fantastic Caroline Parker and Gary Robson uh, at a theatre company in Leeds. So when I got my job at Grey Eye, I thought I need to work with actors I know and I trust and that are good for my first play. So I got both of them in and um, because I wanted it to be bilingual in English at BSL, Vicky Jadair, who I had seen perform in my all-time favourite play, Ubu, directed by Ewan, I knew she would be perfect match to sign for Caro. And I couldn't find anyone who looked like Gary. But I was at an art gallery, a BSL guide at all, and I saw this man signing, bald, a bit round, tall, a bit like Gary, facially. I went, oh, a bit like you, you know. I said, um, are you an actual tall? He said, no, no, I'm in a trip. He said, no, but would you like to be on stage? He went, oh, I'll give it, yes, you're booked. <laughs> I didn't even give him a chance to say no. And that was Rob Chalk. So I had my four. And... It's such a brilliant play for an actor because they play all the characters. And Caro decided for one of the characters that she would just sign and Vicky would voice over. So it gave us lots of rich material to play with. 
The one thing we got really wrong, though, is a real lack of access for blind and visually impaired people. We still only had a few audio-described performances by someone who came in, a very good poster, came in, watched a quick rehearsal. But it wasn't embedded in, in the production in the same way that we learned how to do much later on. But I do think of that play fondly. It was such a gorgeous play to start with. I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was very good. Oh, that's a, that sounds amazing, both of those plays. I will, I will look them up definitely after this. Okay, so what's your favourite memory from Cray? I mean, as an artistic director, I, my favourite moments are in the rehearsal room. And I think when, you're, when it's going well, there's a really playful kind of atmosphere and it's concentrated and it's fun. Um, sometimes, like in the case of Ubu, it's wicked and it's punky. And, and that, those are the, my favourite memories. They're usually in rehearsal room. And it's to do with, you know, the various actors and characters and material you're kind of working with. So that, that, that's the kind of general one I can think of. You know, I think the Ubu rehearsal was when we finally got to express ourselves in a way that was more like we were in real life, like the culture off stage suddenly was going on stage. So all these fantastically funny, intelligent, creative people who were really quite bouffant and um, passive aggressive to the non-disabled world were able to put it all into the material. So that was, you know, that was a defining moment for me artistically, so. Yeah, the anarchy. Yeah, yeah, anarchy. I think, you know, for me, it's like you were saying, it's a, it's a great eye rehearsal is like a rehearsal like no other. You know, you find every single person contributes to the development of the play because of their specific communication or access needs of a ramp or, or whatever it is. And you suddenly that, that informs the design, the concepts, the nitty-gritty of it all. So no grey eye play is ever the same. It, it's impossible because of the uniqueness of our, our, our cohort. And I'm just, just remembering a moment in Reasons to be Cheerful, which is our Ian Jury Punk, which was pure anarchy. But when we had Max Rallam in it, we were just rehearsing the Kung Fu moment. Ian Jury Kung Fu, there was a link, I promise. But we played with this thing that the, um, Max's prosthetic arm fell off. And we were crying, crying with laughter because we thought only in this play, only with that, only with Max could we do that. Yeah. And when I was doing circus training with a whole group of military, army men and women, all of them uh, with prosthetics, they would play hide the leg. <laughs> someone, would, someone would hop off the aerial thing and go, oh, who's taken my legs? <laughs> Where's the leg? And you have fun, real fun. And the, the wonderful Tim Gebbles, who is now long gone, there was a wonderful moment in the rehearsals for The Changeling when he and Karina Jones had to go to kiss and they missed each other. 
both blind. They missed each other. Of course we laughed. It was okay for us to laugh. Do you know what I mean? So it's just, there's something really grounding. And the other bad thing, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's good actually for us. When you go to a pub, when you're with a load of grey eye lot, you can always get a seat. People move. Oh, all these disabled people, and they go. So, oh, brilliant, thanks, we've got a table, brilliant. <laughs> we, um, we also find out touring that we could always get in first class. And we used to call it playing our joker. And I can remember with a group of disabled actors um, who had been doing a week of empowering workshops with young disabled people, suddenly played their joker on the train. Oh, sorry, we were in first class. There aren't quite enough seats. We, could, we need to sit together to support each other. And Oh, no, no, stay where you are. Stay where you are. So, you know, that's a kind of typical grey eye experience. So, And we left behind. There was a riot going on at you know, the National Star Centre or wherever we'd been. And suddenly, if they could have seen us, how pathetic we were playing our joker. Oh, don't, don't mind us, we're poor disabled people. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I think every disabled person has done that before. I, I definitely have done that a few times. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Okay, so as you're both... Oh, you both have experience in directing, then what is it about directing that you love so much? It's, I've been, this is the second time I've been asked that question today. I've just done a, a panel with Orpheus Centre in uh, Surrey, and one of the young people asked me that question. There's something... I never set out to be a director. I didn't know it was something I could do. But it was when I was watching other directors directing, I started thinking, oh, oh, I wouldn't do it like that. I might, oh, I think that's the wrong decision there. And that's when I started to think, oh, maybe I could do it. And what is, it's hard because you, your actors are, you know, they have to be vulnerable. They have to put their heart on the table. Know, to find the character and the, the authenticity of the character. So you have a real responsibility to look after their heart and make sure that they're safe in the rehearsal room. And also, every actor gets more confident with their character at different times. So you've got one actor that's super confident, going, yeah, I've got it, on the go. The other actor's going, oh, Jenny, I don't know what I'm doing. So you've got to try and balance it and get everyone up to the same point. And it is that moment where the music's there, the steps sort of in place, the costumes are working, that was the confident, and then they start to play with it. They start to give it the next layer that you could possibly do as a director. You hand it to them, they own it, and then you go, ah, it's yours now. And it's always hard to let go, always hard. But there's something really wonderful when they actually take, take it and off they go, and they're called Mayhem on tour. So it's, it's an awesome job. I had to do, I did a drama degree, it was mostly practical, and I had to direct to play because it was just part of my degree. And previous to that, if I had any ambition, I wanted to be an actor. But when I directed this piece, nothing interested me as much as that. Nothing absorbed me as much as working, you know, working as a director. 
And that was it from that moment. I just thought, I really, that's something I'd like to do. But I was still, you know, it took a while because even as a director, as a disabled person, the theatre, I didn't feel part of the theatre. I didn't think I would be an acceptable person, you know. So, uh, and I was, um, I didn't go straight for the jugular, as it were, because I was a little shy about it. Um, I was a little nervous about joining the non-disabled theatre world. So path to becoming a director was a very cautious one, not a direct one. Yeah, um, I, I can imagine. And also, like, even for me, like, now when I'm at Greer, I'm so Greer, I didn't even, like, think that I would be able to get into the uh, theatre industry because Although, like, for a while, I've been thinking that, oh, I want to get into theatre because I went to see a few performances on stage and they were just amazing to me. And I was like, right, I want to do this, but how do I do it? So, like, when I found out about Bria, I was very, very excited. But it was the same thing for, like, obviously, like, one of my dreams, personally, I know this is a bit far-fetched, but I would love to get one of Gray's performances on the West End stage, which is one of the biggest theatres in London. I think that would be amazing. That's one of my goals. If I was to take over, I would definitely get a show on the West End stage. And um, because it's always been my dream to perform there ever since I got interested in theatre. So I think, yeah. It's uh, I. We tried really, really hard to get uh, reasons to be cheerful on at the West End. Just didn't happen. I mean, it's we are still a small company. I don't, I don't have those contacts with the West End world, but it would have been amazing to do that yeah. one. Yeah. Really would have been, and it it does make me realise. Uh, what you've just been saying, Isa, that we we still have more boundaries to push, more stages that we want to grace. You know, we've never done a play at the National. Oh, we have. We did Sugar Water, but that was in the Dolphin. We've never done one on the big stage. <coughs> I mean, the solid life of Sugar Water at the National. But we've not done the big one. Uh, we haven't done the Globe. We haven't done the Royal Opera House. Uh, I've got a list. It's my bucket list stages I want to access before I before I leave and let you take over. I've still got stuff to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is a very long list and it's gonna take a while. But hopefully we'll get there in the end. Uh so um I just wanted to ask, what makes a good director? Oh, that's a very interesting question. Um I'm going to answer in a roundabout way. At the moment, I'm directing a play in Japan. Well, they are in Japan in a rehearsal room and I'm on Zoom. And I'm up at five in the morning, well, four in the morning, have a cup of coffee, start rehearsing at five, Shandu's with me. Um, And we have a fantastic Japanese to English translator. There's three, uh, two Japanese sign language interpreters for the deaf Japanese cast. All the UK elements of this production have been pre-filmed. Uh, the 
the death shit aspect of this production of being pre-filmed. I'm trying to put it all together. And there's two trainee directors in Japan who are in the rehearsal room, thank goodness. And I suddenly thought, I don't think I know how to direct anymore. Seriously, you know, it's, 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 you know, I've got to lose a half an hour off the play. Um, I realised my communication, I'm a messy director. I think that's what I'm trying to get to the point. And Japanese people like facts. They like they like an outline and then you fill it in. And I'm the other way. I just get I get messy, 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 messy. And then I go, ooh, now I know what to do. So I think possibly a better director is less messy than me. But I quite like mess. Because out of the mess comes clarity. So, but I think in a pure art, uh, answer to your question. I think good communication and directors do not have all the answers. And I think if you can own that, and it's all right not to know everything, because that's why you have rehearsals, you know, and that not knowing everything gives your actors space and confidence go, well, I know. And they go, ah, mm. and then it becomes collaborative. Very long winded yeah, answer, sorry. <laughs> I, I mean, I largely agree with Jenny. You know, a good director has, Peter Brook called it a hunch. He said, you have a creative hunch about how something should work. And I, I think you have to, you know, you have to be excited by the material, whatever it is, scripted, devises, the actors, you have to be excited about what is possible. You have to have a clear sense of where you might go but you also have to be open to adapting and you're bringing out the best of a team that you're working with, you, you know, and you have to be ready. You know, I used to say as a joke quite early, you know, well, not really a joke, but best idea wins. But if you're an actor, you won't get any credit whatsoever. And so many good ideas have come from an actor or a choreographer or, you know, there are lots of people contribute to a successful production, but you have to be quite clear as a director and, and you know that people have confidence that they're going somewhere that's going to be good with you I think. That That's actually quite quite eye-opening for me because the reason why I wouldn't want to think of becoming a great artistic director is the fact that I'm very messed so I come up with things as I go along like Jenny said and I'd I just piece things together and I'm like, okay, that's going to work, but I don't know about that. And that's going to come here and I don't know about that. So um, that's why it kind of scares me a little bit because I, um, although I tried to direct in one of my college performances, we were in a group and they put me as the director for some reason. And I was just a mess. I didn't know what I was doing. And then someone had to take over and say, don't worry, I'll just do it. And then they directed the rest, and that was a lot easier rather than me directing. So, yeah. yeah. That, sounds, that sounds about right, you know. Yeah. I like that. I do this, yeah. do that. That's about it, really. That was a very, <laughs> I think you're making a very good director. So I just have um, one last question to ask. Um, what advice would you give, like, any young um, aspiring uh either people who disabled people who are trying to get into the theatre industry or trying to get into directing or anything like that. What's 
like the main advice you would give? I I would say just go for it and go for it with an expectation that you deserve it and are good enough and shouldn't be excluded and to be very determined about it. Um, that's what I would say. I would always say, come and find grey eyes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Of course. But, yeah. I mean, absolutely, it's, I think, deaf and disabled neurodiverse people have to just have that, oh, something to push through because there are still so many barriers. Certainly as students get a disability student allowance, it's a, it's a nightmare trying to access that money. So often in deaf students run out of uh, interpreter money, universities won't cover the costs, so they have to do the courses. We hear stories every week from students who are really struggling on the course they are on. Yeah. So there's a lot of work, political campaigning and lobbying to be done in around all of that because those barriers are there and they've got to go. I'm mm. fed up with it now, I really am, they've got to go. But the other thing is, if you have a youth theatre locally, join it. Because that's where you get really good practice. Um, that's where you learn to be you. And know what sort of actor you want to be, maybe. But so youth theatres are fantastic. Not all of them are accessible, but you can campaign or fight for your youth theatre to become accessible. And that will benefit the youth theatre long term. Go see lots of plays, know what theatre you like, and um, also be really, really clear about your access requirements and what works best for you, and learn to communicate that confidently and clearly, because people need to be told. And it's not about being embarrassed, it's not like, oh, well, I need a bit of a, like a bump. Say it as it is. And be very, very mindful of your human rights. And there are people out there that can support that learning, help you find the information. And But the more people who have that clarity, and, you know, we, we have to push more buttons to make sure that the world becomes more accessible for you as you carry on your journey, Isa, and for the little ones in our associate company, our young company. Uh, the younger ones, they're saying, we want we want it all to be accessible, Jenny. And I'm saying, I know. So me, Jodie, Meta, you, all of us have that responsibility to clear that path. Beautifully said. Totally agree with all of that. I, I'm a product of youth theatre as well. From my teenage years, that changed my life. Same here. I started Grey Eye when I was like 14, 15. And uh, yeah, it's... It's amazing. And I definitely think um, we still like, especially for me, like what you said, Jenny, about like being clear about what you need and like what your access requirements are. Because I think like people need to be told that, all right, stop being like pretending that you know everything because you don't know everything about people's lives and you don't know the way people live. So stop pretending like you know anything and just <laughs> sit down and listen. Because, like, in a way, because it needs to be done and it needs to be said. And I myself, I will say it, like, when I was younger, I didn't, I didn't like, really ask for what, like, like my, my school, my secondary school life was a nightmare. Like, 
the halfway through year nine, this is the government decided to cut the disability funding to fifty percent, which was a nightmare for not only me but like every all the like disabled students in my school, and I could just hear like just the staff and the parents like yelling and saying, "What's going on? Why is my uh, son or daughter getting support in this this area? Why isn't that person getting support in that area?" Yeah, and um, it was just really frustrating time, and it still is. And like Jenny said, it's it's very hard to even access those um those like funding and the government whatever the government says they'll give because like it's just a nightmare. So I I would hope to um, change that in some sort of way, and I think that's really important. Sounds fantastic. That sounds like a really good plan and something that's exciting to be part of. Yeah, definitely. I would love to live to see the day where like all of these restrictions are lifted. I like to go, yes, we did it. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you. Visit greyeye.org and disabilityarts.online for details of productions, events, interviews, opinions, reviews and learning opportunities.